All right, welcome back to Local News Live. Thanks so much for being with us today. I'm Amber Seip. That's Mike Bell, which you know what that means. It's time for the Mike Bell Show. Uh, top stories of the day, except for this time, we're doing top stories of the week. We've had a lot happen this week, Mike. What a week, really, yeah. in this year, 2021. We've had so many stories, updates to stories that have been going on for months. So that's what we're trying to do, especially on weekends now. We're trying to go back in time and kind of find out, okay, what exactly happened this week? And let's see about the updates towards various stories. And we've got about eight different stories here. There's no specific number. It's kind of random. People like random numbers from what our uh, focus groups have told us. So, Amber, if you're ready. I'm, I'm ready. ready. I know you got a lot of, a lot of uh, informative, good stuff for us, so I'm ready to jump in. Here we, we go. Okay, so let's uh, kick off with Pretty much what's going on right now, kind of a big uh, deal across the world, is the G20 summit. So this, of course, uh, and I forget, I'm talking ahead of myself, all these stories, you can find them on great websites, of course. Uh, some of these are national news, international news, but you go to your local great website, you'll find these stories. With that being said, let's go to Rome, Italy, um, which uh, I spent my honeymoon there, and it was the best time of my life. Leaders of the world's most biggest economies on Saturday endorsed a global minimum tax on corporations, a linchpin of new international tax rules aimed at blunting the edge of fiscal paradises amid skyrocketing profits of some multinational businesses. The move by the Group of 20 Summit in Rome was hailed by the U.S. Treasury, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen as benefiting American businesses and workers. G20 finance ministers in July had already agreed on a 15% minimum tax. It awaited formal endorsement at the summit Saturday, meaning today, in Rome of the world's economic powerhouses, of course, including the United States, many other countries as well. Here we see uh, President Biden meeting with, well, frankly, I don't know uh, which country's leader that is, but there you go. So the G20 summit is happening right now. Biden, of course, is there as well. We've seen a lot of other dignitaries and officials there as well. Uh, uh, Boris Johnson, uh, Prime Minister of the UK, and others. Uh, we've kind of been keeping this on in the background. Uh, so Biden meeting with, uh, and uh, also part of this video, we're seeing Angela Merkel, uh, the outgoing chancellor for Germany, is also at the summit. This is most likely her last one. Uh, because I believe either term limits or maybe she's just ready to uh, do other things. So a lot of uh, big, important people in Rome, Italy right now for the G20. And, uh, Mike, I want to add to that, too. So uh, on CNN, it kind of breaks down the events happening today. So we know at 920 Eastern here, World leaders participated in a woman-owned businesses event at the G20 Summit. Also, at uh, 10 o'clock Eastern here, so of course this has been a few hours now, President Biden met with leaders from the UK, France, and Germany to discuss Iran. Now, we did not hear from any of those world leaders at that point. Um, and right now, kind of what you're looking at is really a photo opportunity uh, for all of these world leaders just getting together. Um, this is typical of big events like this. So we do know that those two events happened earlier today, Women-Owned Businesses Roundtable, as well as President Biden discussing Iran with France, UK, and Germany. Um, and, of course, other other events are planned as well tomorrow. Um, actually, we don't know the details of tomorrow's event, but we do know, of course, the G G20 
summit will still be happening. Uh, President Biden, Biden and the First Lady uh, both there in Italy. So I uh, just kind of wanted to break down what we heard about today's summit. And I appreciate that, Amber. Thank you so much. Uh, right now on the video, it looks like a giant photo op. Uh, some wearing masks, some not. Uh, but you can see every, oh, practically every country in the G20 uh, uh, being represented, their flags in the background, so on and so forth. Uh, we will, of course, continue to cover the developments from the G20 summit as we go along. But now, uh, uh, if we're ready, let's move on to the next piece in our big breakdown of this week's stories. And that would be, of course, the FDA has backed and paved the way for a Pfizer COVID-19 vaccination uh, being done for children. Let's find out a little bit more here. So uh, this uh, came, it feels like a couple of days ago, but I guess this is the big update here. The Food and Drug Administration on Friday, was it really only Friday? It was. Oh, wow. Oh, I apologize. Uh, I remember watching live, I believe, on Wednesday when the committee or the yes. commission backed it. So, excuse me. The Food and Drug Administration on Friday paved the way for children's ages 5 to 11 to get Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. The FDA cleared kid-sized doses, just a third of the amount given to teens and adults for emergency use, and up to 28 million more American children could be eligible for vaccinations as early as next week. One more regulatory hurdle remains, however. On Tuesday, advisors to the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention will make more detailed recommendations on which youngsters should get vaccinated with a final decision by the agency's director expected shortly afterward. So it says here, uh, go ahead, Amber, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I, I was actually, I, so I was playing the video as you were talking so we could, uh, you know, just, just have a little video rolling. And actually, this statistic popped up, which I thought was interesting. 27% of parents are eager to get their child, age 5 to 11, vaccinated as soon as authorized. That's actually lower than I expected. I did expect that number to be higher. Um, but, but, yeah, so that's uh, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, 27% of parents eager to get their child vaccinated. Well, there's still some hesitancy, uh, um, and, you know, and a lot of, unfortunately, some misinformation still going about, especially on social media when it comes to vaccines. But uh, that's not, not my place to, uh, obviously, if you choose to get the vaccine, that is your choice. If you want your children to get the COVID-19 vaccine, that is your choice as well. Uh, I have a two-year-old, and um, obviously, even with this development, two-year-old, not eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine, but if my child was five to 11 years old, uh, I would most likely uh, venture and, and be like, let's get the COVID-19 vaccine, possibly to avoid any giant medical complications down the road if she were unfortunate enough to contract uh, COVID-19. But everyone has their own decision and uh, we can respect that. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, it's hard to, I mean, like you said, you know, you do have a two-year-old. It's hard to put yourself in those parents' shoes, but uh, especially because this is new and this is new information, you know, the latest just coming out on Friday um, after the committee backed it, our panel committee backed it on Wednesday. Right. Um, so, and also, it's been a big week for vaccines. Not only are we talking about the FDA approving the Pfizer vaccine for young kids, we're also talking about the booster the booster shot and for the vaccine. Now, here, I'll play this video here. We, you saw it earlier on our Facebook page. 
Vice President Kamala Harris got the COVID vaccine booster today. She got the Moderna shot. Uh, so you can see her here sitting down in that chair and receiving the COVID vaccine. Afterwards, she spoke and just said, you know, I did this because I, I want to I would encourage everyone else to do it, um, not only get the booster shot, but also get the vaccine in general. So uh, been, a, been a big week, lots of discussion between uh, kids getting the vaccine as well as uh, that COVID booster shot. Lots of things to talk about. You know, and I, I wanted to bring this up earlier, but again, uh, uh, if you're president, if you're vice president, if you're a, a really important uh, elected official of pretty much any country, Still, it's got to be a little weird getting a shot uh, uh, on national live TV. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm watching this, and, and we, we have seen uh, uh, other people getting their vaccines or getting their booster shots. Uh, uh, the president, I remember watching live as he got his booster shot. But still, I just, I, I feel like I have to say something. This is just, what a world we live in. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely crazy to see where we are now um, with this. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, this is the world we live in, you know, elected officials getting on TV, getting on camera, doing, you know, making a medical decision publicly uh, to encourage others to do the same thing. And, and that's what we saw today for, from uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, President Biden got his booster shot, was it September 27th, I believe? I believe so, yes. Uh, yeah, end of September, so he's had his for about a month now. Um, but yeah, and, I, and I'm guessing we will see other uh, elected leaders do the same thing in the future. Exactly, so speaking of uh, the White House and, and the presidency and politics, we gotta, of course, move on to the budget. Uh, the budget, of course, uh, uh, $1.9 trillion, or is it uh, $3-point-something trillion? It seems like, to me, it changes every day. So let's find the latest news, because I'll be informed, and so will everyone else, and that makes me feel good inside. Medicaid issues, not Medicare, uh, get fixes in the current Biden budget proposal. Uh, Medicaid issues are turning up as winners in President Joe Biden's social agenda framework, even as divisions force Democrats to hit pause on far-reaching improvements to Medicare. The budget blueprint Biden released Thursday would fulfill a campaign promise to help poor people locked out of Medicaid expansion across the South due to partisan battles. And it would provide low-income seniors and disabled people with more options to stay out of nursing homes by getting support in their own homes. It also calls for 12 months of Medicaid coverage after childbirth for low-income mothers, seen as a major step to address national shortcomings in maternal health that fall disproportionately on black women. But with Medicare, Democrats were unable to reach consensus on prescription drug price negotiations. Polls show broad bipartisan support for authorizing Medicare to negotiate lower prices, yet a handful of Democrat Democratic lawmakers, excuse me, enough to block the bill, echo pharmaceutical industry arguments that it would dampen investment that drives innovation. Advocacy groups are voicing outrage over the omission, with the AARP calling it a, quote, monumental mistake. So again, the battle in the uh, House, in the Senate, uh, and between the White House, of course, uh, uh, Biden's plan for a budget uh, of trillions of dollars, I feel like that's safe to say, will still most likely uh, be over a trillion dollars, continues in the Senate with a couple of holdouts, uh, one being uh, Senate, Senator Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, of course, 
making a lot of news because of their disagreements, them being the two Democratic senators who are kind of uh, um, leaving things so there's no supermajority, I believe. We're just going to have to watch and wait and see what kind of agreement can be made. And I also want to point people out, too, because, you know, it's such a, the budget's such a detailed thing, and there's so many parts of it. So you can find, this is just one example. This is on WILX. You can find, as Mike said earlier, find these stories on great television stations across the country. This one specifically on WILX, very lengthy, very detailed um, with what that budget entails and uh, everything about that. So just wanted to add that in there. Absolutely. So we're going to move from Washington politics to something pretty much completely different. I feel like I just kind of made a Monty Python reference. And now for something completely different. Flying Circus, Amber? No. Nope. You have no idea. Unfortunately, no. This is what I have to work with, everybody. I apologize. So <laughs> let's move on to uh, the big, if not the biggest, trial going on in the country right now. That is for Ahmad Arbery. So this is uh, coming to us from Glen County, Georgia, being covered uh, quite extensively, of course, by our station there, WTOC. The second week of jury selection is wrapping up in the Glen County, uh, in Glen County, in the trial of three men charged in the shooting death of Ahmad Arbery. Jury selection is spilling over into the third week. This week ends with 55 qualified potential jurors, just shy of the 64 needed to move into the next phase. Um, brief aside here, I've covered a number of trials in my life, uh, murder trials, other kinds of charges being stipulated. 55 or 64 or whatever it is, that is so many jurors and replacements for said jurors and everything like that because you need 13. So usually you have 13 plus one in case somebody gets sick in the next few weeks. I've never heard of a number so high for a jury trial. There's probably more on record somewhere for some trial somewhere, but I'm not sure. This is, I, what I'm trying to say is this is not regular, this is not normal, but it's a very big case. Once 64 potential jurors are qualified, the prosecution and defense with the assistance of the judge will pair that number down to 12 and four alternates. That, that's, I should have said alternate, not replacement, alternates. So basically if you're an alternate juror, you sit there, you watch the entire trial, just like you were if you were part of the actual jury. And then if for some reason somebody has to drop out because maybe they get sick or, or, or other factors, then you step in as that juror. You've been there the whole time, but at the end of the trial, if uh, the entire jury still remains and you've been an alternate, you're pretty much dismissed because then the jury will go into deliberations to find the verdict. So uh, just incredible. And, and of course, this has taken a couple of years here for the shooting death of Ahmad Arbery. Again, WTOC on top of it, check them out, but of course, there are stories, like all of our stories throughout Gray, available on any Gray website. Yeah, and I actually, Mike, I know, you, I know you just said it's been, it's, you know, this has been going on for over a year now. I, they have a timeline up, uh, WTOC does on their website, so I'm just going to click through that really quickly. So Ahmaud Arbery died after he was pursued and shot uh, by white men who saw him running in their neighborhood on February 23rd of last year, 2020. This happened in Brunswick, Georgia. Now, police questioned those who chased and killed the 25-year-old and let them go. The prosecutor initially assigned the case 
uh, opposed, initially assigned to the case, opposed seeking charges. Now, in May of 2020, almost three months later, Travis McMichael and his father, Gregory Rick McMichael, and William Roddy Bryan were arrested and charged in connection to Arbery's death after a video shot by Bryan of the McMichaels chasing down and killing Arbery went viral. Also, May of 2020, the McMichaels charged with felony murder and aggravated assault. Their attorneys and attorneys assist insist, excuse me, they committed no crimes. Uh, also, May of 2020, William Bryan has been charged with felony murder and felony attempt to commit false imprisonment. Now, June of 2020, we saw those rallies being held to demand justice for Ahmad Arbery. Multiple rallies held in Brunswick, Georgia, um, outside the Glynn County Courthouse. We also heard his name in other um, rallies happening across the country. Uh, June 24th of 2020, those three suspects were indicted. A grand jury indicted all three defendants in addition to malice murder and felony murder charges. Each are charged with two counts of aggravated assault and one count each of false imprisonment and criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. July 7th of 2020, all three plead no, not guilty. They were denied bond. The McMichaels were denied bond in November of 2020. Brian's attorney says his health was deteriorating and he was released from jail or requested to be released from jail because of that. It was denied, but that was January of this year. Governor Kemp wants to overhaul citizens' arrest. He, uh, that was in February of 2021. Governor Brian Kemp backs plan to overhaul the state's citizens' arrest law, taking aim at a statute scrutinized last year. If I may was in, killed. Yes. really quick, Amber. The whole idea of citizen's arrest is uh, it is mired in old laws and every state is different and it is just a giant headache to try to detangle these things. From what I understand, citizen's arrest doesn't really exist in a lot of states anymore because the whole idea that you're going to stop someone who you believe is breaking the law but you are not a police officer in any way, shape or form just invites nothing but uh, 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 lawsuits and a whole lot of trouble for both parties, really. Mm -hmm. So I, I just wanted to butt in. That's something I've been reading up on recently. Yeah, and uh, and again, the Georgia governor backing a plan to overhaul that uh, state citizen's arrest law, and that was in February of this year, February, of course, 23rd, 2021, the one-year anniversary of his death. At that point, all three suspects remained in the Glynn County Jail now, April 28th of this year, all three suspects were indicted on federal hate crime charges. And now we fast forward to this fall. That is when things really start to pick up. Um, a judge coming out and saying that Ahmaud Arbery's past troubles, completely irrelevant to the trial and to what happened to him. That was in September of this year. Uh, former Brunswick District Attorney indicted on charges for hindering case investigation. Also the beginning of September of this year. That same district attorney arrested and released on bond for charges connected to the Arbery case. Also, new body cam video released in the Arbery case. Again, that's September 16th of this year. Arbery's mental health records not used, not being used at trial, according to a judge making that declaration in October, the beginning of October of this that's, year. That's not surprising at all. Right. Private medical records rarely come up unless it would be somehow relevant to the case. Mm -hmm. And the judge decided they are not. 
And then as you know, Mike was just breaking down the jury selection process for us, we know October 14th of this year, 1,000 summoned as possible jurors in Arbery slaying trial. And that again, a huge number. It is. And again, this, that's kind of where we leave it now. Jury selection smelling into third week. We just heard, uh, you know, the breakdown there from Mike. But I kind of wanted to just jump on and do that little timeline thing. One, because WTOC breaks it down in a great way for us. We can kind of, you know, gather what happened over the last year and a half all in one place. Um, but also just kind of shows, one, how long these things really take. It takes a very long time. The wheels time. of justice, they turn slowly. Yes. So, but that's where we are now. And uh, I know we've got more top stories to get to, but uh, that's a big one. That's the latest there. And again, as uh, Mike was saying, you can find these stories anywhere, but this one uh, really from WTOC. Uh, their website, their page, uh, doing a great job of breaking that down. Absolutely. Thank you, Amber, for all that fast talking you just did because I'm already getting winded up here. <laughs> there, there's a lot to cover mm -hmm. uh, today, everybody, because uh, it's been a very interesting week, and we're going to move on to another big story, which you've probably heard of, but do you know the latest developments? Well, you're going to find out. So, of course, uh, Alec Baldwin was on set at a movie, I believe being filmed in uh, New Mexico. Gun accidentally went off with uh, live ammunition in it. One person injured, one person dead. Let's find out the latest here. So the fatal shooting, <clears throat> excuse me, the fatal shooting by Alec Baldwin on a movie set has put a microscope on an often unseen corner of the film industry where critics say the pursuit of profit can lead to unsafe working conditions. With the budget around $7 million, the Western film, quote, Rust, uh, was no micro-budget indie. Well, $7 million, I suppose I could agree with that. The previous Best Picture winner at the Academy Awards, quote, uh, No Man Land, was made for less. But the New Mexico set where Baldwin shot cinematographer uh, Hol Hol Helena, I apologize, Helena Hutchins, had in inexperienced crew members, apparently safety lapses, and a serious labor dispute. For some in the business, the failures reflect larger issues in a fast-evolving movie industry. Quote, production is exploding, corners are being cut even more, and budgets are being crunched down even more, said Minette Louie, a veteran independent film producer. Quote, something's got to give. End quote. The shooting happened at a busy time. Production was ramping up Following the easing of pandemic restrictions, streaming services are increasing demand for content, and all the while the industry is wrestling with standards for movie sets. Uh, there is so much more to this story. I, I have a, uh, a rather weird interest in, in uh, when it comes to kind of like OSHA stuff, safety stuff, uh, 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 violations of safety standards for some reason. Uh, uh, these kind of reports, along with, of course, crime reports, have always been an interest of mine. So I've been following this story. I can easily go on about how uh, a good number of the crew walked off the set the day before the shooting happened because they uh, cited safety concerns. Also, they had not been paid in three weeks. Check out this story because it, there's a lot more to this than just Alec Baldwin and a gun going off and someone being killed and someone being injured. There's so much more to this story than just that. It, it Obviously, it is sad and is devastating, but at the same time, it is very interesting. So you can go to any great website, read more and more and more, and there's several videos as well. 
but that's just part of this investigation into how this is going on. From what I understand, the armorer who was uh, uh, attached to this film has been answering questions with authorities, but hasn't really met with them. I am not quite sure what that means, but that was something I was reading on one of the Gray reports as well. So if you want to check out more of the story, you can find out more. So we're going to go on to the next one because, Lord, Amber, we still have so many more stories to go. Mm -hmm. It's been such a busy week. What happened this week? Man, all right. Here's another one. Governor of Alabama, uh, Governor Kay Ivey, has signed an executive order against COVID-19 vaccine mandates on Monday, according to a press release from the governor's office. Executive Order 724 fights the, quote, overreaching COVID-19 vaccine mandates from the federal government, end quote. According to the press release, the federal government, <clears throat> this is another quote, excuse me, probably from the press release, the federal government's outrageous overreach has simply given us no other option but to begin taking action, which is why I'm issuing this executive order to fight these egregious COVID-19 vaccine mandates, Alabamians and Americans alike should and must have the choice to roll up their sleeves to get this shot and certainly not forced by the government. While President Biden laughs at the idea of protecting your freedoms, I will continue fighting for Alabama businesses and their employees. That is from Governor Kay Ivey of the state of Alabama. The executive order states that all agencies, departments, boards, and commissions, or other state agencies will not impose penalties for businesses that are not in compliance with the federally imposed vaccine requirement. So again, we've heard a number of other states doing this as well. Uh, Texas is the first one that comes to mind. When it comes to the uh, uh, railing against the federal vaccine mandate, you can find more. This one, of course, coming from uh, WAFF out of Montgomery, Alabama. They're all over it. So when it comes to the uh, uh, anti-vaccine anti mandate, at least when it comes to Alabama and how they're concerned, you can go there and you can learn more. Speaking of which, uh, I just mentioned Texas, so I guess that kind of leads me into the next one, huh? Texas, uh, abortion access for women in Texas continues to be impacted by a state law. The Texas Heartbeat Act, SB 8, which effectively bans the procedure uh, being abortion after six weeks. So this one being covered uh, more extensively by Gray DC. On November 1st, the state's legal team will defend, <clears throat> excuse me, the state's legal team will defend the law at the US Supreme Court as opponents ask the court for clearance to challenge the law in lower courts. The court will hear two cases. Experts say no matter the outcome, neither case would immediately overturn the law. Paul. Schiff Berman, the Walter S. Cox Professor of Law at George Washington University said, quote, all the parties want is just the ability to challenge the constitutionality of the statute, end quote. The Texas Heartbeat Act effectively bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy by allowing private citizens, not the government, to sue anybody who helps a woman receive an abortion. So again, this is another story that we have been uh, hearing about for months, really. And now it is going to be heard in the Supreme Court. At least part of it will be heard in the Supreme Court November 1st, which uh, is only two days away, tomorrow being the 31st, being Halloween. So I can't believe October is already over. But that's where we are when it comes to the Texas abortion law. You ready for the next one? 
I'm ready. Okay. All right. So here we go. Uh, we've got one more, a, a bit more of a local story. We've had a lot of national and international news. Here's another story. This one is one of our big trending stories throughout Gray right now. Evansville, Indiana, of course, coming to us from our station, WFIE. Authorities plead for community to do better after child's death. Uh, new information has been released in the investigation into the death of a three-year-old in Evansville, including police say the discovery of more than 5,000 fentanyl pills. If you don't know what fentanyl is, I totally understand. Fentanyl is a, uh, it's a narcotic, a very powerful one. It's gotten a real giant, uh, uh, almost household name, unfortunately, and not in a good way, of being placed into other drugs uh, like heroin or cocaine and, and other substances. And what this stuff does is it's a very powerful narcotic. So a lot of the times people think they're buying one drug illicitly, but they're actually getting whatever that may be, but fentanyl's also in it. And then they, they die by doing what they think is something else. I'm not obviously condoning any of that stuff, but this is just really nasty stuff. I've talked to police chiefs. I've written stories about this before. What is really nasty about fentanyl is even a little bit of the fentanyl powder can get on your skin. It gets absorbed in your skin and it can knock you out instantly. So it is a little terrifying because then you have to be treated with Narcan to wake up so that you actually start breathing again. Back to the story, excuse me. Quote, this tragedy needs to serve as a wake-up call in this entire community. When you have children overdosing on fentanyl and when you have all of these overdose deaths, we're all put on notice. We have a responsibility here. This is unacceptable and we need help. So what can society do? What can you do to help us? End quote. Vanderburg County Prosecutor Nick Herman asked. On Thursday, the coroner identified the three-year-old as Kamari Opperman. Uh, I'm going to scroll right by that picture because it kind of twists my heart because hey, oh, that's just devastating. Police say six people have been arrested in connection to the case. Evansville Police and the uh, County Prosecutor's Office gave a news conference on Thursday afternoon. Uh, more background on the case here. Police were called to a home East Michigan Street Wednesday morning according to 911 calls obtained by 14 News. Dispatchers were told the three-year-old child got a hold of a fentanyl pill Tuesday and was not taken to the hospital. The affidavit shows there were at least three other children involved and two of them had to be given Narcan. So there could have easily been two other children uh, dead because of this incident, but thankfully they were not. Uh, during the news conference, officials said one of the children also had a fractured skull. Here are the arrests. 20-year-old uh, McKaylee Opperman, the three-year-old's mother, is accused of neglect of a dependent causing death along with another, other drug and neglect charges. Amber and Brandon Opperman also booked into jail on neglect of a dependent causing death charges. One more quote here and uh, we'll move on. This isn't a game. Fentanyl will kill anyone. Small doses will kill anyone. I'm not naive enough to think we're not going to stand up here again in a couple of weeks and have another one of these press conferences about some horrible tragedy because I'm sure that we will, but we have to be on notice. As a community, we have to do better and we have to protect our children. That is County Prosecutor, County Prosecutor Herman uh, being quoted there from a press conference, um, which is so sad, may I say, but unfortunately I believe he is right. 
And so fentanyl is just an absolutely disturbing and lethal uh, substance that is finding its way into homes. And um, I'm not obviously going to say how people get a hold of it, but it is really easy to get a hold of. Those are the top stories this week. Just some of them. We had more, but we have to eventually... I, I need to catch my breath after a while. Yeah. But, Amber, those are the top trending stories, not along gray, but pretty much across the world. So we have the G20 summit, vaccine stuff, COVID, so much more going on. It, it's a lot to keep track of, but I guess that's why they pay us. Right. And uh, we will, of course, keep track of those stories throughout the next week. We're going to try and do this every weekend, every Saturday. Uh, just get on here and talk about the week's top stories, a weekly wrap-up of sorts. Um, so don't forget to check our Facebook page for those frequent Facebook Lives. So we appreciate you being here uh, with us. Again, I'm Amber Sipe. That's Mike Bell.